Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. I'm one of the pastors on staff, Christ Chapel, in our college ministry. Um, and I think he left, but Thomas Gallagher was here earlier. I got a bunch of random texts on like Friday night asking me how I pronounce my last name. So there must have been like a bet going on or something like that. Um, I pronounce my last name Sanchez. Um, some people say Sanchez. I really don't care, but I say Sanchez if you want to join me in that pronunciation. Um, but I guess there was a bet going on. And I think it's kind of funny, too. It kind of ties into what I'm talking about today. Um, I think names are fascinating. I remember eight-year-old Nathan. I'm like in a tourist gift shop or bookstore or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but I remember there was like names and like little cards and it had like the name, the meaning of people's names on there. And there was like Amy, the loved one, Abigail, the cheerful one. Then there's like Wyatt, the warrior and all these. And I was like, okay, what's my name mean? And I remember looking at mine and not being like totally impressed. Um, and I remember asking my dad, like, do, do last names have meanings too? Um, and he's like, yeah, like so, there's some that are like Donaldson. That just means you're the son of Donald, but last names have meaning, meanings too. And I was like, well, what's Sanchez mean? And he goes, it means set apart. And I was like, wait, what? I'm like eight years old at this time and I'm in elementary school and I feel like no one, like, I just want to be a part of everything, right? I'm a like insecure little kid. Um, And I was like, I don't want to be set apart. I very much want to be a part of something. Like that is a terrible last name. Um, And then years later, you know, come by and I start following Jesus in, in college. I start reading my Bible for the first time, start reading scripture. And I start reading like, multiple verses that talk about when you're adopted into the family of God and you start following Jesus, he calls you his beloved and his chosen, holy, and set apart beloved um, son or daughter. And so I'm seeing all these verses and it kind of clicks. I'm like, wait, I love my last name. I, it kind of points me to a really beautiful reality of my relationship with the Lord. Um, And I think names, although they're common and we all share them, right? Like I can guarantee you there's at least three of us named Matt in here, right? Like although we all share these same names and there's a wide array of people that are both common and uncommon sharing one name, I think names are significant. You see, they tell a story about our lives. They tell a story about our origin. And I think sometimes even tell a story about who we are, even our nicknames, right? Um, my, My wife and I are about six weeks away from having a little girl. We're having a daughter which is fun. Yeah, I know. She's, she's going to be cute. Um, and we have been thinking of names. We landed on Tatum Nicole Sanchez. Yeah, I know. She's already electric. Um, Tatum means uh, bringer of joy or giver of joy, but it also means strong and resilient. She's going to be cool. Um, Nicole means victorious or one who walks in victory. And there's a lot of reasons, and Sanchez obviously means set apart. There's a lot of reasons why we chose those names, um, but we were very intentional with choosing our daughter's name because we wanted her name to communicate something about her. We wanted her name to be something that she herself could one day ground herself in and something that ultimately would point herself and others to Jesus. Because ultimately, when you know someone's name, you see them differently, right? Um, Like, 
For example, if my buddy comes up to me and tells me he just went on a date with a girl and he's like, dude, bro, she is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. She's an absolute smoke show. She's pretty. Like, no other girl is like matches her. And then I'm like, hey, what's her name? That's so fun. And he tells me her name is Helga. Like, I'm not gonna, like, I can't not think of like a Russian powerlifter who's got a fat wart, like right here, right? Like, it totally changes the way I see this girl. Um, and for me, a lot of people get tripped, tripped up. My first name is actually Eric. And when I tell people that, they're like, dude, that's the name of a nerd. And I'm like, hey, hold on. Like, that's my name. Um, but I'll wear glasses and people like say I'm Eric. And um, Eric actually means leader and king. So who's the nerd now? Like, it changes. Anyways, the name changes the way you see people. Um, and I believe that God um, knows that and is very intentional with names, especially his own name. You see, he reveals himself in scripture over and over again to different people at different times in different ways, and each of them respond with a different name for him based on their encounter with him. Like, we just opened up today with a song called A Thousand Names, and we go through a list of all of these names for God. Um, and there's some that are like provider and father and helper and all these things. But then there's the old-fashioned Hebrew names that we see in the Old Testament. Names like Yahweh and Elohim and El Shaddai and El um, Elyon and El Roy. And all these are names that mean God is the Lord. God is the creator. God the Almighty One. God the Redeemer. All these names of God point to and communicate something true about the character of God. And when you know these names, and especially the context in which they're given to him and they're ascribed to him, you know God more truly. You start to see him differently. You start to see him more intimately. And, and so I just have a simple question for, for us today, and it's the question we're going to be answering, is do we know the name of Jesus? Do we know everything that that entails and all the goodness packed into it and all the, the beauty that surrounds the name of Jesus? Do, have we truly caught a glimpse of who he is and the story he's told with his life and everything that comes along with Jesus? Do we know what his name means? And some of you are in here thinking like, yes, Eric, I know the name of Jesus. Like, I grew up knowing the name of Jesus. But my question in return would be, do you actually believe he is who he says he is? And does that change the way you live day by day and moment to moment? So it's with that said that we're going to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 25 together. Um, we've got scripture on the screens. If you have one of our Bibles, great. Um, there's some more in the back. You can keep them. That's our gift to you. But we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And you might be thinking, okay, why the heck are we going to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 25, to answer a question about who Jesus is? Well, for a few reasons. Reason number one is, contrary to popular belief, the Old Testament is not irrelevant. I think it's very relevant. I think every page, and believe every page of the Old Testament, points to Jesus. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, if you're just joining us, um, college ministry, we walk and preach through books of the Bible. So we've preached through like Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, James. This year, we wanted to take you to the Old Testament um, because we believe it all points to Jesus, um, and we're in 1 Samuel. Last week, uh, Ryan McCarthy got up here and preached, and he preached chapters 21 through 27. It was something crazy. It was a lot, so kudos to him. Um, and in the context of it, we're going to just zoom in to one chapter, chapter 25, um, and we'll, we'll jump in in verse 1. It says, Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house at Ramah. Very joyful start to the story. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. 
the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was sharing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. Now the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man, he was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So let's stop right there. We're introduced to three characters. We've got David, we've got Nabal, and we've got Abigail. Now, for those of y'all who've been uh, with us, David, we're familiar with already, right? He's the already but not yet king of Israel. He's the chosen anointed king of God. There's a current king right now named Saul, but God has said, you're going to end up replacing him. Um, So he's already but not yet king. So that's David. Then you've got Nabal, who again, if you've been with us, you're, you're reading his description and he kind of reminds you of Saul, the current king, right? He's very rich. He's very great but he's also very harsh and badly behaved. And his name, here's the interesting part. Nabal's name literally means fool. Like in Hebrew, if you heard the word Nabal, you heard the word fool. And that is this man's name. So keep that in mind. That's going to come up a lot. Then you've got Abigail, who's um, called the woman was discerning and beautiful. Sounds like my wife. Um, I fully just said that because I left dirty dishes in the sink this morning and I'm trying to get brownie points. Um, So you got Abigail. She's awesome. And then you see the setting of 3,000 sheep that Nabal owns, 1,000 goats. All that is painting this picture. Um, This sheep shearing thing that is mentioned is this festival that's being held. It's meant to paint this picture of a time of abundance. There's a huge feast. There's a huge festival. Nabal's ushering in this big party. That's kind of the context that we're in. Now pick up in verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. He was throwing this party, this festival. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And here's what you're going to say to him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us, and we have done them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. So ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Let me unpack what that, what's going on here. David and his men, he's got like an army of, we're going to see later, 600 men with him. Again, they're kind of fleeing Saul. They're in and out. If you kind of were here last week, you remember some of that story. They're in the wilderness of Paran. They stumble upon this flock and all these shepherds, um, and they show kindness to them. They start taking care of them and guarding them and protecting them from, from animals trying to eat the sheep, from raiders trying to steal the sheep. They are protecting the shepherds and the flock. They are simply showing kindness to uh, Nabal's possessions, essentially. And he humbly and peacefully goes up to Nabal and asks for provision in return. He's trying to get kindness for kindness, right? Um, It says he's offering him peace. He literally calls himself the the son, your son David, which is just this... um, respectful, honoring kind of thing of elevating Nabal above him. But look at Nabal's response to to David's request. Verse 9, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants. He said, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to someone who I don't even know? Um, and he turns David's young men away, and they come back, and they tell David, and it's not quite the response that David was expecting. In fact, it's the exact 
opposite. You see, David expected to be shown some level of favor from Nabal. After all, he helped make sure Nabal's flock was safe and secure. He's the whole reason they're able to throw a party to begin with. He's kept all of his sheep safe that they're going to throw this party with. Um, And David even humbles himself. He introduces himself as your son, David, right? It's this elevation of saying, you are the priority. I'm elevating you above me, Nabal. And he's expecting some sort of favor in return. But instead, Nabal dismisses David's request. And you look at his questions, right? He's asking, who is David? Where does he come from? The whole thing. And it seems like he doesn't know who David is. But after studying this passage, there is a lot of reason to believe that he knew exactly who David was. And he's just dismissing him. He's kind of um, talking smack about David and insulting him and dishonoring him. It's kind of like how what we would do um, for the first game of the year when we're playing SMU, right? We're like, SM who? Like, you're just kind of talking trash. Like, that's exactly what he's, he's doing right now. He's like, who's David? Like, I, I want nothing to do with David. David is nothing to me. And he's insulting him and belittling him. Um, and just for clarity's sake, and for all of you, you note takers in the room, I've got a little chart just to kind of put this contrast up. You've got David's request, which is marked by um, he's being polite, he's respectful, he's humble, and he's offering peace. He says that word three times. And then you see Nabal's request, and it's dismissive, it's harsh, just like his character, and he belittles David, and he insults him. And here's the other thing that I want you to take note of in Nabal's actions and his response. He's got a closed, tight grip on his possessions, right? Look at verse 11. He says, shall I give my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed and my shearers? All these things are mine. Why would I give them up to this David guy? David who? Um, He attributes all those things to himself even, right? These are mine. These are these are Nabal's possessions. It's not even an open-handedness with them. He's not willing to, to show any kind of kindness in the slightest, which we'll come back to later. But anyways, all of this leads David, um, he loses his mind. He absolutely loses his temper. Look at verse 13. It says, David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. I guess the takeaway from this one is stay strapped. Um, Verse 14 says, but one of the young men told Abigail, I know why it's sour, loved that joke. Um, But one of the young men told Abigail, this is one of Nabal's servants. He says, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master and he railed at them. He just He insulted them. Yet the men were very good to us. They protected us. We suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. Again, they protected us. And all the while, we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can even talk sense to him. And so this servant is stressed out. He's freaking out. He's telling Abigail everything that's going to happen. David has 600 men 
and his army. And he's sending 400 of them to go wipe out Nabal for being rude to him. And the servant is like, I'm about to die. You're about to die. We're all about to die. Abigail, do something. And then verses 18 through 20 is Abigail doing something. I'm just going to summarize it. But we see Abigail immediately takes action. She does something about it. She understands the gravity and the severity of the situation and that David could literally wipe out their entire city and people. And she wisely works out a plan. She prepares a gift for David. It's a lot of food. I guess she knows the way to a man's heart is food. Um, She doesn't tell Nabal, her husband, what she's going to do. She knows that he's just going to interfere and make matters worse. So she sets out on her own alone to meet David and this angry army ready to go destroy a city. And so here you have this imagery of a woman alone. It says she's on a donkey of all things, not even like a stallion or anything cool like that. Like she's on a donkey, this woman walking right up and meeting an army of 400 angry soldiers and a ticked off king, right? Talk about bold and strong and resilient. That is courage. And this girl, Abigail, has got it, right? She's wise and she's bold. I kind of pray Tatum ends up that way. And here's what happens in verse 21. It says, now David had said this. He's ticked off at this point. He's like, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow had in the wilderness. Nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to me and more also if by morning I leave him so much as one male who belonged to him. He's threatening to wipe out everyone except for one male. Now when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words that I have to say. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name. Fool is his name, and folly is with him. Through gentle words, she calms David down with unwavering wisdom. Abigail reminds David that Nabal is a fool. He is a worthless man. He's not even worth the time or the energy. She then goes on to tell David if he truly has God on his side, if he is the anointed one, right, this is kind of what's going on, then he can trust God to bring justice. There's no need for him to go and shed innocent blood and exact justice on his own. And then she offers David this gift of food and provision that he originally requested, and she takes the blame. She falls on the sword of Nabal's mistakes. She owns, she takes the fall and owns mistakes of Nabal on his behalf. She even asks for forgiveness on Nabal's behalf. She has done nothing wrong. She's just kind of minding her own business. Stressed out servant tells her that Nabal did something dumb, and she fixes the problem. Like, what a woman, right? She did nothing wrong. And what we see in this story is that God uses this woman, this beautiful and discerning woman, to calm and correct the future king of Israel, which is an unbelievably countercultural, dramatic, jaw-dropping moment. You see, in this day and age, women were not elevated at all. Women were not seen as, as having worth or dignified or valuable. They would not have ever gone one-on-one to talk to a king. That just doesn't happen. So the fact that this is happening is huge. And you see all throughout scripture, God elevate the status of women. He calls her beautiful and discerning. She's a woman of worth. She calms and corrects the king that I have anointed. Like that speaks 
volumes. She demonstrates discernment, humility. She even owns someone else's mistakes. She's truly selfless and truly the hero of this chapter. Um, here's some notes on, on Abigail. Verses 18 through 20, we see her take initiative, right? Servant comes out to her stress. She does something about it. She takes action, um, and she does it wisely. Then she shows humility. She bows down before David, recognizes him as the king, owns the mistakes of her own husband, even though she did nothing wrong. She takes a selfless, um, humble posture towards David. And then we see that she sees the bigger picture. She says, David, you've got God on your side. Why are you going to go do this on your own? Like he is going to fight your battles for you. Like he is going to bring justice. That is who he is. That is what he's going to do. Do you trust him? She sees the 30,000 foot view, reminds David of it, talks sense into him, and essentially, not essentially, truly saves the day. Um, And just to let you in on how the story ends, I'm going to summarize the next like 20, 30 verses. David is impressed with Abigail, right? He listens to her. He takes... Um, everything she says into account, and he immediately relents and relinquishes his his anger. Abigail ends up going back to Nabal, who it says is literally partying, and he's drunk out of his mind, and so she's like, well, can't talk to him right now. He's not even going to know what I'm saying, so it says she waits until he sobers up the next morning, and she tells him everything that happened. She's like, hey, you almost got yourself killed. An army was about to come wipe out the city. Um, Here's what I did. I, I saved your butt, and it says his heart stops, And 10 days later, it says that the Lord struck him down and he died. The Lord brought about justice. Then David makes Abigail his wife. He knows a good thing when he saw it, I guess. Um, And that's kind of the end of the story. Again, it's a story of Abigail saving the day. Now, here's how I want to wrap this up. I want to wrap this up and I'm going to leave you with some application pull from each of the characters in this story. And I want to start with Nabal. Nabal. Um, whose name means fool. Application point number one, don't be a fool. Um, Sounds pretty simple. Dads in the room are like, yeah, that's like all of life's problems solved right there. Don't be foolish. Um, Don't be a fool. Um, As I'm studying this passage, I stumbled across Isaiah 32 verse 6, and I thought it was perfect for this because it paints a picture of who this character we see Nabal is. For the fool, and again in Hebrew, it translates literally to Nabal, So for the Nabal speaks foolishness and makes evil plans. They practice ungodliness. They spread false teachings about the Lord. They deprive the hungry of food and give no water to the thirsty. Exactly what happens here in this story. And they practice ungodliness. Um, A few weeks ago, I gave a sermon, and I remember pointing out in it, and you can go back and listen to it if you want. There's a couple psalms that both start with, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that doesn't mean that they have this atheistic mindset of God doesn't exist. It's making the point, as you read those psalms, that people go on living and they de-elevate God from one rung down to the next until God essentially has no influence in their life at all. And ultimately, whether they are consciously saying it or not, they're saying in their heart there is no God. They're practicing ungodliness. God has no say in their life no influence, and they don't look like Jesus whatsoever, and they're not growing in the image of Jesus. So application point number one, don't be a fool. Um, Application point number two comes from David. Listen to wise counsel, right? Um, Like David, are you willing to let people speak into your life? He's angry. He's ticked off. He's about to go destroy a city, and yet he takes the time to stop and listen to this humble 
woman named Abigail who comes up by herself and approaches him and tells him, hey, what are you doing? You're being a momo. Like, don't do this. Are you willing to let people speak into your life and point out blind spots, point out the broccoli in your teeth, tell you how you might be making a rash decision? Are you, are you willing to give people even a window into your life to be able to do that? Listen to wise counsel. The Lord puts people in our lives for very specific reasons um, to help grow us and shape us into, into his image and push us closer to him. Application point number three comes from Abigail. Do you see the bigger picture? Do you see the bigger picture? Are you able to step back from your moment and the stress of a situation into the 30,000 foot view and remember the bigger picture? Are you able to align yourself with the movement of God and, and with the, the redemptive purposes and plans of God? And this, hear me say, takes a whole lot of trust. It takes a whole lot of faith to do this because I get it. If you're anything like, like me, I say, Lord, I don't want to give up my accomplishments to you. I don't want to give you all of these things that took me years to achieve. These are my dreams. These are my desires. This is my relationship. This is my job. All of this is mine, not yours. You can't have it. This is my life that I have earned. It is not yours, God. It doesn't belong to you. I worked hard for this. And when I start thinking of that, I'm reminded of Psalm 24 that says, The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein all belong to him. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And then James 1 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And both of these verses remind me that we owe everything to him. Our gifts, our talents, every good and perfect gift, anything that we have, it was and is his all to begin with, right? Do we remember that? And if you're in Christ, Galatians 2.20 says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My life is no longer my own. It's not about me anymore. It's about you. And this isn't to say that you have to give everything up, every good and perfect thing up to God. No, that's not what I'm saying, but I am asking you, would you be willing to? Are you willing to, to do that? Do you, like Nabal, have a closed and tight grip on all of your possessions, all of your dreams, all of your desires, all of your talents, all of your relationships and jobs and all those things? Or are you palms up and open-handed, willing to say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine. It's not about you, so not about me. Um, last application comes from Abigail's servant. Right? He comes out kind of geeking out, um, and he's stressed, and he tells her everything that happens, and he's like, hey, okay, now you know this, consider what you're going to do. Know and consider. Now, therefore, know this can, and consider what you should do. And I think this one is something that I've got to remind myself of daily, but I think is extra important for those of us in this room who might not have a relationship with Christ yet, who, who might say, I'm not even sure if I believe all this hubbub, all this weird woo-woo stuff, like Jesus, I'm not sure where I'm at with that. Know this and consider. Know and consider that Jesus gave up his life so that you could have it here and now and forever. Know this and consider that in contrast to Nabal, Jesus, who although he was so anxious to the point of sweating blood, knowing that he was about to die on a cross, was a man who said, Lord, not my will be done. It's not about what I want, but about what you want. 
Father, your will be done. I'm going to this cross. Know this and consider that Jesus, who just like Abigail, took initiative and met us right where we're at. Some of us probably looking just like David, angry, ticked off, and frustrated with God. God, why are you withholding from me? Why has this not happened yet? Why do I not have the girlfriend or the boyfriend yet? Why are you not giving this to me? I've followed you this far. Why are you not showing up in my life? Why did you let that happen to them, to me? I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm angry with you. And there Jesus is meeting you even there gently and calmly with grace and with empathy. And who just like Abigail, showed ultimate humility by dying on a cross because he saw the bigger picture. He saw that you were broken. He saw that you were desperate and in need of a savior. And he, he saw that it was you who was supposed to die on a cross. It was you who was supposed to hang on a tree. It was you who made a foolish, rash call to rebel and stiff arm the God of the universe. And he owned your mistakes on your behalf. He asked for forgiveness of your sins to the Father on your behalf. And he hung on a tree till he breathed his last and was buried in a grave, and that should have been you. Ultimate humility, ultimate sacrifice. And then he walked out of a grave three days later so that you could have his life and you could claim it as your own. So let me leave you with this. Here's what the name of Jesus means. The name of Jesus translates to God is salvation, or the Lord saves, depending on how you interpret that. That is his name. That is who Jesus is. That is the gospel. You see, we have all of these names for Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, Emmanuel, God with us. His name is hope, and it is love, and it is truth, and it is life. He is friend. He is redeemer. He is God in flesh who gave up his life so that you could have it, and have it as your own. He's the name above all names, and it is a name that saves. And everything about him, everything that he's done, the story that he's told, everything about his life points to that reality. So do you believe he is who he says he is? Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Here's, if, it, if you're comfortable with it, how I want to I close. Um, I would love for you to just close your eyes and reflect for a moment. Just take a second to reflect on the name of of Jesus. The Lord saves. God is salvation. What areas of your life do you need salvation? What areas of your life do you need a rescue? How does this reminder that Jesus is Lord, that he is your salvation, your rescuer, your redeemer, how does that change the way that you will pray? Pray in this moment, today, pray in the weeks to come and in the coming months. And then what are the places within your soul I want you to make this personal for you within your soul that need the reminder that he is salvation.
where do you need him personally today to rescue, restore, and redeem? What are those areas of your life that are broken that you need him to step into and make whole? Just take another minute to reflect and pray. Jesus, you are good and you are sweet and you are kind to meet us right where we're at, even in this moment. With everything that we're bringing into this room, Lord, um, whether it be anger and frustration even at you, whether it be doubts, um, whether it be questions or even just shame, guilt, regret, Lord, or even just um, a life of joy, whatever we are walking into this room with, Lord, you meet us there with grace and with empathy and with love and kindness, Lord. Would we encounter you and your truth and your forgiveness, even in this moment, would you remind us and help us see truly that you are salvation, that you are redeemer, you are rescuer, um, and you are the only one who can save, and ultimately that we were sinners in desperate need of a savior, and you are that savior, Lord. Would we see you as that? Would we know it to be true? And would we, would we believe it with everything that we've got? Um, Father, we love you. We need you. It's your name that we pray. Amen.